I think probably one of the things that happens to most successful people at some point in their life, uh, hopefully sooner than later, is they realize there's only so much pleasure, so much enjoyment and gratification you can get from uh, earning and enjoying for yourself. Uh, you know, there, there's an old cliche that people who are wrapped up in themselves make a very small package. <laughs> Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has inspired in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Mark Sanborn. Now, Mark is an internationally known author and speaker. He's a member of the Speakers Hall of Fame. In 2007, he won the Cabot Award, which, for those of you that don't know, is the National Speakers Association's highest honor and his clients have included ESPN, Harley Davidson, IBM, John Deere, FedEx and many others. My co-host John Ramstead recently sat down with Mark over Skype. Well, we're here with Mark Sanborn. Mark, I just want to thank you so much for making the time. I'm really excited to have you on this edition of Eternal Leadership. You have so much to share. And uh, I'd love for you to just maybe just kick this off by just sharing a little bit about yourself and, and letting our audience know a little bit more about you. Well, thanks, John. It's great to be with you. I've been speaking and advising leaders for 29 years. Uh, I write books on business topics, but primarily on leadership and turning the ordinary uh, into the extraordinary. Probably the book that I'm best well known for is The Fred Factor. And the book that I'm also uh, known for is You Don't Need a Title to Be a Leader. But I've lived in Denver, Colorado for all many, almost as many years as I've been uh, speaking, writing, and advising. And it's uh, terrific to have an opportunity to share ideas with you and your listeners. Well, you know, I love the, the title of The Fred Factor. You know, our, our tagline for the uh, podcast, Mark, is How to Develop Extraordinary Lives, Businesses, and Faith. And that's exactly what the Fred Factor is all about, isn't it? It is indeed. And, you know, I've noticed that truth is transferable. I think sometimes we create false dichotomies where we live by one set of rules at work and we have a different set of principles at home and yet a different set of principles in the community. But, but truth is transferable. The only thing that ever changes is how we apply the principles. But the principles are always the same. Well, you know, you bring up a great point, you know. You talk about ordinary and extraordinary, right? The difference between the two really lies in those principles, doesn't it? Well, it does, and I believe that we all live similar lives. We all have the same number of hours and minutes in each day, but it's what we do with those hours and minutes. It's what we do with each moment that determines whether it's ordinary, whether we let it pass uh, without taking any extra effort to transform it into extraordinary and as I've always said, you know, if you, if you pay attention to the moments, the moments become your life. So I believe that a great life is, is lived moment by moment. As important as goal setting and strategic planning is, it's really about being fully invested in the moment, making the most of each moment, each opportunity that we encounter. Well, you know, Mark, that, that brings to mind a question. You know, how, how do you define extraordinary? What is extraordinary to you in somebody's lives? Well, I don't want to sound flip or trite, but anything that stands out as not ordinary is extraordinary. Now, of course, I'm assuming the positive. Something could be extraordinarily bad right. or uh, extraordinarily unpleasant. But we're all very familiar with ordinary. Ordinary is unremarkable. It's not memorable. It's not notable. So whenever we can do something 
I sometimes call ABCD above and beyond the call of duty. When we can do a little bit extra for someone in the service we provide or the attention we give them or the assistance we offer, then that becomes extraordinary. And, you know, we, we don't remember the ordinary. Sameness is a really bad business strategy, and it's a really bad life strategy. From a business standpoint, uh, sameness doesn't get you noticed. It doesn't create customers nor repeat customers. And from a life standpoint, you know, I always like to quote Helen Keller, who said, is life not a thousand times too short to bore ourselves? Hmm. We, we uh, can be ordinary. I, I don't believe you can make anyone be extraordinary. And certainly, we live in a world where many choose to be ordinary. And that's their decision. And there's nothing wrong with it. But for me, not trying to be extraordinary when we can is a huge opportunity cost. You know, it, it means that at the end of our lives, we reminisce about what might have been instead of celebrating and savoring what we were able to create and do. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that maybe view themselves as ordinary. They've had, you know, gusts up to extraordinary here and there. But I, I think it's a deep desire in a lot of people's heart to really, you know, make an impact in the world around them. Uh, but they're but they're stuck, right? They don't really know how to move forward. And I know this is something you teach on quite a bit. How do you share with people to to kind of take that next step to a new level in their life? I believe everybody is always at one of three places in their life. They're either stuck, struggling, or successful. And, of course, what's interesting is once you get to successful, you run the risk of becoming stuck. You know, if you become successful to a certain level but never improve or get better, in a way, you're stuck, only you're stuck at a higher level. Right. So for each of those three areas, whether we're a, a leader or we're coaching someone or we're working with our, our kids, we need to know that each of those three uh, if we're trying to be a positive influence in someone's life, that each of those three uh, situations require a little different input. When somebody's stuck, what they really need is a push and a plan. Uh, ultimately, they're going to have to do the work themselves, but we can encourage them, we can uh, push them and prod them in a positive way, and we can help them formulate a plan because I believe that when people get stuck, it isn't uh, because they're unwilling to do anything, but more often than not, they, they think they've run out of options. I would say that, that hope is having something new to try and being willing to try it. So as long as you can give somebody a new strategy or a new idea, uh, something that they can try that they haven't tried before, or maybe even something they tried before but didn't work because of the way they did it, we can help them start to get that flywheel turning. And, of course, you don't instantly go from stuck to successful. I, I suppose there are exceptions. But by and large, you know, it takes effort. And then we struggle. And, and to keep that momentum going, uh, that's where encouragement becomes uh, even more important. And I think where we need to uh, give people feedback so that they can make their efforts uh, more uh, effective and, and fine-tune them, fine them to, to get that flywheel becoming, uh, moving more quickly. And then finally, when, when the plan, and it should have included some sense of what success looks like, when it finally becomes accomplished, then we need to make sure that people don't become complacent, that they are proud of what they've done. And I think that's a danger that a lot of leaders fall into is they never let people be proud. You know, they, they always communicate to their teams that good enough is never good enough. And that's a really quick way to demoralize people. You've got to let people be proud of what they've accomplished but you just have to be careful that you don't let them become complacent. And I, I call that in my work positive discontent, being 
proud of what you've accomplished, but, but not being content with it. You know, moving from stuck through success, right? Even when you think you have options, that destination that you're trying to head toward, that clarity of, you know, that objective, that goal is really something people also struggle with. Any thoughts on that? How to how to really get that clarity of where you want to move to? Maybe it's in business, it could be in life, it could be in your faith, but just to have a clear picture of where you even want to move toward. I think we assume that people that don't have clarity just haven't taken the time to define what it is they want. But I think that maybe in some ways an even bigger problem is people don't know what they want. And, and that's due to a couple or three reasons. One is they haven't tried enough different things. When our boys were little, and, and I know you have, uh, you have kids as I do, and they're roughly the same age, but especially when they were younger, we always encouraged our boys to try things. Not to just try things they were good at or things they knew they would be successful at, but to try everything from music to martial arts to, uh, to competitive sports to acting in, in community theater. And the idea there was not that they were going to want to do all those things, but that that would give them perspective and it would give them options. You know, it's that old saying, you never know until you, you try it. And so I think people need to not get into this highly reflective state where they just don't do anything until they know exactly what they want to do. Sometimes just going out and volunteering in a, an organization, your time and, and your uh, energy will open opportunities to what you really enjoy doing outside your, uh, your professional life. I think another reason why people uh, don't know what it is they want to do is they're, they're afraid to aspire to something more than they have. I think that when we minimize our expectations, that's a way that we manage our disappointments. That is to say, if you don't expect much and you don't get it, you're not too disappointed. You know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I believe that successful people and leaders aspire higher, that they aim a little higher, that they're willing to take the risk knowing that they may not always get everything they aimed for, but if they aspire higher, they'll always get more than they would have gotten anyhow. So it's a, it's a, a no-lose strategy. It's not about getting everything you aspire for. It's about aiming a little higher so that you'll get more than you would have gotten. And then finally, I think that another reason why people don't have a, a sense of clarity uh, to what they want to do is what I started with, and that's the more common belief that people just haven't done the hard work of reflection and introspection to develop that vision for the future. Uh, I think we need to do both, live life fully and try a lot of things and be very uh, attentive to what really uh, you know, floats our boat, what really fuels our fire so that we can begin to formulate what success looks like going forward. And, and I'll just add one more thing, John, and that yeah. is that, that, that vision, even a, a vision that was once very clear and important, can change over the course of your life. You know, I think we have different visions for different points in our life, you know, our early career, mid-career, uh, late career, and then post-career. So I, I think that anybody that thinks that whatever they thought they might want to do at age 21 is still going to be relevant at age 51 might want to rethink that. Well, yeah, you know, every part of our life is a different season. And I know we've had the discussion about, you know, during my accident, there was a point where uh, it was pretty clear to me I, I didn't think I was going to make it. And I was thinking about what my life had meant up to that point, right? And it had totally 
changed the vision and the direction that I was going in my life. And it really boiled down to Mark was I wanted to live a life of significance. And I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And I know that that's something uh, that you kind of defines you, right? You, you, your whole life have wanted to be uh, an impact player, uh, make a difference in other people's lives. I, w- I would love for you to share with people how you've done that yourself. Maybe, maybe a point that was kind of a low point that you pulled yourself back up to kind of where you are now, and how you could equip some other you know people listening to this to move in that same direction. I consider the difference between greatness and fame. You know, fame is based on what you get. You know, the attention, the accolades, the recognition. But greatness is based on what you give. And not all of us, as a matter of fact, not many of us are ever going to be truly famous, but all of us can be great. I think today we have confused young people a little bit with the attention we give to famous celebrities. I always say that, you know, Lady Gaga is famous, but Mother Teresa was great. Now, it just so happened that Mother Teresa also became famous, but it was her greatness that she's remembered for. Uh, Her life was always about others, about serving others. I think probably one of the things that happens to most successful people at some point in their life, uh, hopefully sooner than later, is they realize there's only so much pleasure, so much enjoyment and gratification you can get from uh, earning and enjoying for yourself. Uh, You know, there's an old cliche that, uh, you know, uh, people who are wrapped up in themselves make a very small package. (laughs) That's that's true, that I think self-absorption is probably the one thing, and I certainly fight it, you know, that that kind of vague sense that, you know, your problems are the most important problems and your situation is the worst situation. And and certainly, I don't want to downplay or diminish the tremendous challenges people faced, like you faced in your accident. I'm a cancer survivor, John. So, you know, we've we've had different uh, paths to having the same kinds of contemplations about what really matters in life. But I think that we get to the point where we realize that not only is it uh, rewarding to, to be of service to others, but it's, 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 a, it's more fun. And the funny thing is, and I can't quite explain this, but most people seem to get it when I talk about it, is that if you only do something for others, hoping that you'll be recognized for it, it for some reason it short circuits the process. And when you don't get recognized, because often things we we do for others go unrecognized or unnoticed, then we become demoralized. But when you just do things for others because it's the right thing to do and you want to do them, there's a tremendous sense of of satisfaction and gratification that comes from that. And you, you turn that locus of control in your life from external to internal. You don't start depending on on others to validate you or to build you up. And that's nice when they do. I'm not opposed to that. And I think we we should all do that for people we we appreciate. But ultimately, successful people, uh, they they live by a a standard that is internal. I've used for years a, a silly example. And I don't even know if my wife has ever heard the story, but... Early on when we got married, um, for some odd reason, my wife likes the, uh, the, uh, the door in the laundry room closed, the closet door where we keep coats and boots and stuff, right? And, and you got to keep it closed because it's always messy back there. Well, it's messy, and of course, she's got a number of reasons, but it doesn't matter to me. You know, right. whether it's open or closed, it's not a part of the house many people see. But I realized one day 
if it's important to her, then it should be important to me. So I just, I work a little extra hard if my sons leave it open or I find it open to close it. Uh, now, to this point, and we've been married 19 years, uh, she's never come to me and said, sweetheart, did I ever tell you how much I love you for closing the, the closet drawer in the laundry room? <laughs> Uh, that hasn't happened, but it hasn't dissuaded me from doing it because I just know it's important to her whether or not she knows I'm closing it. She thinks the boys are closing it or, you know, our little tiny dogs have learned to close the door. It doesn't matter because I know it's important to her. And, and if I had waited for her to just come and say, oh, honey, you're, you're the best husband. You close the door. Then I would have quit doing it a long time ago. But a lot of people are kind of carrot and stick. You know, they, they, they do things in the hope that there'll be a payoff, and when the payoff doesn't come, they become discouraged and quit doing those things, even though they were the right thing to do. Well, you're talking about, well, first of all, the whole concept of identity, where you're getting your identity from, you know, what's what's builds up your self-esteem. And I know, uh, you know you're a person, Mark, of deep faith. I'd love for you to just share how your relationship with God has informed a lot of what you're teaching now and just this whole concept of of identity. It's wonderful, John, to be able to be overt about it because, you know, my work is in corporate America. I, I'm not paid uh, to, to share my faith. It's uh, not something I hide, but it's also not something that is uh, front and center when I speak. That's that's not why I'm engaged. But what I find interesting is that when I talk about the principles that I talk about, and up until this point in our podcast, uh, I never I never mentioned faith or or God or Jesus Christ. But all of the things we talked about, doing the right thing and, and being of greater service to others and avoiding self-absorption, those are all biblical principles. So I don't have to talk about them and, and frame it up by saying, and that's what Jesus taught, and this is what God expects. I think sometimes by being covert, we can point people towards the kingdom by creating curiosity instead of unintentionally creating condemnation. You know, it's very easy for people to hear about these things and, and feel guilty. Well, you know, that's not me, and I'm not wired that way, or I ought to be, but I'm not. And that, that's very condemning. But when we can create curiosity, you know, we, we attract more people to eternal principles. And once they do inquire one-on-one -on -one, uh, about why you do what you do or why you live your life a certain way, that opens the door for us to share our faith. And I was, I was born... Um, I was, you know, a, a recipient of the Lucky Family Club. I was born into a family where both my parents were strong believers. I grew up in probably a little bit of a, a legalistic environment, a very rural area. But, you know, people were wonderful, soul-of-the-earth people that would do anything for you to help you out. And I, I was in an environment where I knew at a very early age the tenets of the faith. I mean, I knew my Bible and I, I knew as a lay person my theology. But it wasn't until much later in my life that I kind of moved my faith from my head into my heart. And that was after a period of kind of prodigal son behavior, wandering in the wilderness that started during my college years and really lasted until I moved to Denver, Colorado, where I, I uh, encountered a, a pastor in a church that really challenged my thinking and, and brought me back to my roots, but at a very different experience where, to me, uh, Christianity became much less a system of just belief but a system of belief and behavior. And that's really the great disconnect for so many people of faith is is uh, they forget that Jesus said, you know, even the demons believe and they tremble. You know, intellectual assent isn't what makes your life dramatically different. 
Matter of fact, John, if I did half the things I knew I should do in my business, I'd probably be so wealthy and successful, I'd be on a yacht right now in the Bahamas. So it, it's not a, a lack of knowing, but more often than not, it's, it's closing that gap between what we know and what we do with the information. And I think the same is true in our, our faith. Is It's one thing to know Jesus loves you, but it's a different thing to show that Jesus loves you. And that, to me, is, is the, the, one of the, the great challenges and opportunities of our faith. Well, I'm curious, Mark, what, what did the pastor say to you that really challenged your thinking, that really started this whole shift toward relationship with God for you? Well, I can tell you, the pastor uh, was Jim Dixon, who just recently retired uh, from Cherry Hills Community Church, where I've attended for many years with, with now my wife and my family. But I just kind of serendipitously, uh, it was a God thing, ended up in, in church because uh, a girl I was dating at the time told me it was a great church and, you know, it was good people. And it, I really went for all the wrong reasons. I kind of went for social reasons, not spiritual reasons. But, but Jim was preaching about the fact that Christ, uh, when Christ was alive, his followers and the people that met him wanted him to be their earthly king. They wanted to be liberated. They wanted to have him lead them out of the oppression uh, of the culture at the time and the, the, the religious authorities. But Jesus said, I won't be your earthly king unless you make me your spiritual Lord. And I thought, for me at the time, that's exactly where I was at. I wanted the benefits of being a good person. I wanted the, uh, you know, I wanted the uh, uh, benefits of, of being a, a churchgoer and a, a moral person and a person that could talk a good God talk. But I realized that I had reached a point where I, I denied Jesus the very thing that he was asking me to do, and that is to make him Lord of my life, not just my spiritual guru or my, you know, my, my self-improvement coach. And I did a very low-key thing. I didn't, you know, go to the front of the church or raise my hand. I just, in my heart, made a, a decision that, uh, and, and that's what repentance is. Repentance literally means a turning away from or a turning to. I turned back to God and said, you know, I've, I've uh, tried it on my own and I haven't done well. I don't have, had a lot, a lot of fun, but it wasn't the kind of fun that in the scheme of life, you'd necessarily be proud to recollect your, you know, your grandkids. And um, that's, that's the turning point where I, uh, I, I started to, to try to follow Jesus, not just in my beliefs, but my behaviors. You know, it's interesting, you know, they call Jesus, you know, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? I had the Savior thing down, but the Lord thing I really struggled with. Well, me too. I, I, I was all for the fire insurance. I just wasn't all for the, uh, for, for the behavior change. So, you know, well, here's a question for you, Mark. You know, when you were sitting there quietly, you made that decision. You, you moved into a different relationship. What did you notice in your life as you did that? Well, it, it opened my eyes to opportunities. It was certainly a chance to get involved in being a greater service to others because the church then, as the church does now, uh, had a lot of uh, service opportunities where I could kind of get outside my own little world and you know, whether it was being involved in, uh, you know, speaking in church or being involved in the singles ministry or whether it was uh, working a soup kitchen, uh, that opportunity presented with, uh, you know, my desire, if you will, coupled with opportunity was a turning point. But I also started to get past the legalism of, you know, trying to look for loopholes and instead, you know, trying to actually obey the spirit of the law rather than trying to figure out how I could maybe do something and get around the letter of the law. Well, 
you know, I would also tell you, I read your book, The Fred Factor, before I knew you well, and it was very clear to me on the, the principles that you teach in there very clearly. Uh, every single one of them comes from this relationship that you have with God. Uh, and I think you've been able to take what you're doing as a leadership expert and a speaker and what you've done in business and and take this and, and make an impact in the world just by who you are and how you represent your faith out into the world by serving others. I'd love for you to share some of those those principles because they had an impact on me and uh, uh, and I know on many millions of other people. I'm sure. Well, I appreciate that, John. You know, I you know I, I believe in that that corny old poem. You know, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely point the way. So I certainly aspire to that, but not out of any any uh, arrogance, but but just out of humility. And there there have been a lot of moments in my life, a lot of moments in my life, where I've fallen far far short and and been anything but an example of what a, a Christ follower should be. So any feedback about the moments where that's come through, I'm very grateful for. But a, I think that uh, we we need to go back to something. Arrhenius said, he said, uh, the glory of God is a man or woman fully alive. I think that when we live fully in the right way, uh, that's the first step to being a a lighthouse for other people. Uh, Too many of us only know Christians by what they don't like or dislike or disapprove of, or or we know Christians that are are dour and bitter. And that certainly uh, isn't I don't think, uh, well, I know it isn't what God calls us to, and it's a really bad way to, to try to be uh, salt and light in the world. You know, to be, to be off-putting is not a way to, to catch, you know, be fishers of men. You know, when you're in that mode, like you just talked about, and you're also being judgmental, there, there's no love that shines out. There's nothing that's attractive to the world that they're saying that they're drawn to when you're in that mode. Yeah, and if we can't be happy with our faith, then then why would somebody who's already unhappy uh, want to go from being unhappy without faith to being unhappy with faith? I think that that's just a, a practicality. Then I think the second thing is 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 just look for you know look for a, a, a little oper- any opportunity to to make a person's day a little bit better, whether that's something as simple as holding the door for somebody at the grocery store or being pleasant uh, when you when you order a meal or being appreciative when somebody does something for you. I think it goes back to this really crazy antiquated concept called thoughtfulness. You know, I think that mm. um, we're called to be like Jesus. I mean, well, the whole point of the the whole point of the faith is are we more or less like Jesus? And and I know it went kind of out of vogue a few years ago, although, you know, you still see the bracelets, what would Jesus do? That's really simple but powerful theology is to just start thinking about, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we struggle with, wow, I wonder if that panhandler really is poor and homeless, or maybe he just makes a lot of money and goes home at the end of the day and, you know, blows it on, you know, cigarettes and booze. I'm not so sure that that's the question. I think the question is, you know, what would Jesus do if he thought someone was in need? Uh, and, and so it, it challenges our thinking, you know, and that's what thoughtfulness is, giving uh, full thought or, or contemplation to, uh, to, to opportunities. Uh, and, and finally, I think it's about learning uh, and, and being in relationship with God, you know, whether that's through uh, prayer or what I, I well, my, my current pastor uh, likes to use the word abiding. I think that's a great concept. When you abide someone, you're with someone, you're in relationship, you're with them, you talk to them, you think about them, you ask them questions. 
And, and by doing that, uh, that's how we become more like Jesus, by learning more about who Jesus was and importantly, who Jesus still is. Well, you know, when you, Mark, when you talk about being fully alive, right, it reminds me of John 10, 10, right? Being thoughtful, be, you know, abiding in God. How do you authentically bring that mindset into work, you know, into your daily interactions and the, the 50 hours a week that we spend away from our family? I think we basically stay very close to not just the what we're doing, but why we're doing it. You know, um, motives matter. You can you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and you can do the, the wrong things for the right reasons. But the goal is to do the right things for the right reasons. And if we're called to uh, to be salt and light in the world, I guess that the easy question to ask in anything we do at work, you know, whether it's how we treat our colleagues or how we treat our customers, mm-hmm. is this, and that is, is what I'm doing life giving. You know, does it enrich life or does it diminish life? Because faith always enriches life. It never diminishes life. So anything we do that diminishes another person or diminishes uh, opportunities or diminishes value, uh, those are are things that we can be pretty confident are contrary to our faith. So I think looking for ways to be life-giving and life-enriching, I think, are the easiest ways to uh, ask and remind ourselves how to live out our faith at work. You know, that's just a great litmus test, isn't it? Just think about an interaction or something that bothered you and just ask yourself, did I, was I life-giving in that situation? And I think the, if you're honest with yourself, the answer will be pretty apparent. Well, you know, and from a personal standpoint, and it's funny that, you know, after all these years, I still forget is uh, anything we do inappropriate, sin diminishes our experience. Uh, God doesn't love us any less, but, but God, uh, you know, wants what's best for us. I think too often we look at uh, God's commandments and God's uh, instructions is oppressive when in reality, they're opportunity. I said, if I was lucky enough to own a Ferrari, I would follow very closely the owner's manual. I wouldn't decide to mess with it and say, you know, I know that those engineers that designed this amazing piece of automotive craftsmanship, I'm smarter than they are. I think I can mess with the timing and do better. And yet to me, when we look at the created and the creator, we as the created often try to second guess the creator. And we go, I, that, make, that makes no sense to me, God, why you wouldn't want me to do that. So I'm going to do it anyhow. I, I love the definition from John Piper. My favorite definition is sin, and there are many, but John Piper says, sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied with God. And if you think about it, anything we do that, that is wrong or inappropriate or sinful Ultimately, whether we did it consciously or unconsciously, we were choosing to vote for something other than God. We were choosing to say, this is more satisfying than you are, God. Well, Mark, how did you get to a point where, you know, you were satisfied with God in all these different areas? I wish I could say that, you know, 24-7, I always was, that I never had any doubts, that I, I never uh, goofed up or, or, or reacted inappropriately. Um, I think that it's it's a it's a process of maturity that is unique to the individual. I don't know why God takes so long to to bring some people around while other people seem to just naturally become saints at an early age. But I, I think that that comparison, comparing ourselves against others, is is really not the the right question. The question is what what does God want of us right now? What not what do we want to do for God? I think as Christian leaders we get into this, okay, now that I'm 
got means. I, what, I want, here's what I want to do for God. The real question is, what does God want you to do? That's about being in tune with what he wants from you and what he wants of you, uh, both what you do and who you become. Well, Mark, as we wrap up here, what you know, you've worked with so many leaders and companies. You know, there's there's people driving down the road. Uh, they're hearing what you're sharing. What what's one piece of advice you'd leave with them to take their their like you talk about in the Fred Factor, right? To move their life from ordinary to extraordinary. To take that next step. I'm going to offer. A paradoxical statement, and that is that we often accomplish more by doing less. I think that activity is the anesthesia of the modern person, and I think leaders are are no less uh, prone to this. We often think that by staying insanely busy, we're accomplishing something. But often, all we're doing is staying insanely busy. So especially, you know, as, as we uh, approach the end of the year at the time that we're recording this, this is a good time to really get reflective about uh, not how busy am I, but what's important and am I accomplishing it? Because it would be a real disappointment to get to the end of your career and realize you've been busy but not accomplished much. And sometimes by creating a little more space for reflection and for relationships and for growth, we can accomplish far more important things than we can by just staying busy. Well, I love that statement, Mark. I think one of the biggest learning points I've had over the last three years is, you know, how do you make the important things important? And it sounds like a simple statement, but it takes daily focus and commitment to actually put that into place. And it does make you less busy and creates much more fulfillment than I've, I ever had in any other point in my life. Well, I agree. Well, you know, as we as we finish up here, Mark, uh, we're going to definitely put a link to the Fred Factor and anything else you're doing here in our show notes. But what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and connect with you? The easiest way is to go to our primary website, which is MarkSanborn.com, M-A-R-K-S-A-N-B-O-R-N.com. Anyone that wants to read my blog, I blog once or twice a week or wants to connect or follow me through social media or see the the resources and services that we make available they'll find all of it at marksanborn.com hey will you touch on real quick too mark uh the speaking that you do i've heard you speak and it is uh fantastic well thank you i uh, am a keynote speaker primarily i do about 50 or 60 uh, engagements a year around the u.s and some international i I talk to uh, groups of c-level execs I talk to groups of, uh, of great diversity where there are employees from the front line all the way to the, uh, the, the, the C-level, executive level, and, and everything in between. But basically, I, I talk about my work in leadership development, uh, the Fred Factor, and uh, one of my favorite topics is this idea that you don't need a title to be a leader. Uh, leadership is about skills, not about status, and that uh, if you learn when to lead and how to lead, you can be a bigger and a greater difference maker in, in anything you do. To learn more about Mark Sanborn, go to eternalleadership.com slash 020. That's eternalleadership.com slash 020. There you'll see the show notes, and in them there are links to Mark's books, his website where he has his blog, topics he speaks about, videos about his messages. All of those links can be found in our show notes at eternalleadership.com slash zero two zero. 
or you can get to those show notes and those links by clicking the link embedded in this MP3 on your smartphone, tablet, or on your computer. Extra special thanks to those of you that have taken the time to send John or myself a note. We've loved hearing your stories, your victories, how we can pray for you, and even more importantly, your feedback. We'd love to hear what you'd like, any guest suggestions, uh, topic suggestions, and we even like to hear when you think we've missed the mark. So please contact us through Facebook at facebook.com slash eternal leadership. You can send us a message through there or find John and myself on LinkedIn and connect with us there. Next time on Eternal Leadership, author and speaker Dennis Tratine. Six months or so ago, I, I was in Appleton, Wisconsin at a high school giving a talk called How to Be an MVP Employee. And why is this so relevant? Well, So many young people don't have the kind of jobs available like you and I might have had when we were in our teen years. And and if you don't have any experience in the workforce, you really are going in fairly green. And that's part of the issue in the millennial generation is they're not having many of the same opportunities that we did of, of working in that real world. Dennis talks about how to prepare your kids for the real world and how you as a parent can equip their faith to stand when they leave the nest. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.